Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Hoy me acompaña el profesor Jesús Jesse Esparza. Dr. Jesús Jesse Esparza is an associate professor of history at Texas Southern University. His area of expertise is on the history of Latinos in the United States with an emphasis on civil rights activism. Dr. Esparza's book, Raza, Schools, Latino Educational Autonomy and Activism in Texas, offers a multiracial narrative of a Latino-controlled school district in West Texas between World War I and the Chicano movement. Bienvenido a este episodio, Jesse. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Talk to us about growing up in Texas. I was born and raised in San Antonio. Okay. Uh, and, um, I, you know, I come from a, a huge family, a working class family. Uh, I'm the son of immigrants. My parents are from uh, the state of Coahuila. Mm -hmm. They come from small pueblos there, uh, from... Um, Sabinas, Coahuila is where my mother's from. My father is from a, a town that's somewhat walking distance to it. Uh, Abujita is what they call it, is La Buja. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, you know, you grow up, uh, you know, in a working class community, in the neighborhood that, that I came of age was a neighborhood that was predominantly African-American. We moved there when I was in the third grade, and I remember we were probably one of four non-black families mm -hmm. in that community. That's not the case anymore. Today, it's probably the other way around, where there's probably less than three African-American families who occupy that sort of square block there. Um, but, you know, you grow up uh, working class, bilingual. Uh, mm -hmm. I spoke Spanish at home and English at school and those kinds of things. And um, But, I, you know, it was those kinds of occurrences and those kinds of experiences that really sort of are going to mold me and shape me and uh, allow me to ultimately think about, you know, sort of higher pursuits. Right, right. And so coming from a working class um, uh, background or family, was education important? Uh, was that something that you knew, like your parents expected you to go to college, et cetera? No, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, on a daily basis, we would hear, make sure you get up on time, and I don't want you late to school, and I don't want you skipping from class, mm -hmm. you know, and those kinds of things. So education was stressed. My, my parents were educated in Mexico. And they knew how to read and write and all those things. They were great mathematicians, still are. Um, and, and they stressed those things upon us as well. I, and, and, and so a lot of the credence that I put on studies comes from them. I was also an athlete when I was in school. And here in, in Texas, we have some a law, I think they call it the, the no pass, no play law, that if you don't pass your classes, then you can't play sports. Mm -hmm. And my thing was football. I loved football. And so I made sure that I was always reading and writing and doing homework and I would come home with books and those kinds of things. And uh, education was all, always, always stressed. Um, when I graduated, however, that's sort of where the, the conversation ended. My parents, um, while they had hoped I go to college, mm -hmm. could not afford to send me to college. And while they hoped that I somehow end up in college, They could not offer advice mm -hmm. on how to survive college, how to apply to college, how to select the college, how to select a major, how to withstand the rigor. And, and I mean, they weren't apprehensive to it. They just they were like me in that we didn't have anybody that was kind of mentoring us and mm -hmm. talking to us about those expectations. And so needless to say, when I did go to college, while I didn't go very far from San Antonio, I went to school in San Marcos, 
um, it was a strange new place for me, and I, it, the things that I expected uh, were not there. And I found myself, uh, in, in, certainly in that first year, uh, struggling as a Latino student uh, in what is now right sort of this larger, mostly white campus. It's a TWI university. Um, and I saw no resources, and I saw no counselors, and I didn't see APs, I didn't see any coaches who were nurturing me, who were encouraging me to, to, to succeed and study for that exam, and I didn't get any of that in college. And so, and, and so, but, so education was stressed, uh, but uh, unfortunately, we were ill-prepared to sort of understand the next level uh, of college, that is to say my parents and I, and even my brothers and sisters before me who had right. attended uh, colleges and universities couldn't complete them. Mm. And so they were probably expecting the same thing. And, and uh, um, fortunately, that wasn't the case. Right. And so, um, so even with that experience that you had in undergrad, I mean, a little bit of, I don't know, difficulty getting acclimated um, as a Latino student, how, what made you decide to continue on to grad school? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I struggled academically, and but while I went to college with persons that I knew from San Antonio and from and from my high school, in fact, uh, some of my classmates were roommates with me mm -hmm. several times throughout my experience there. And uh, you know, while I was there with persons who were familiar with me and who really made it uh, sort of easier for me, and we relied on each other, uh, I sort of still felt uh, as you know isolated, not part of a community. I was not connected to the Chicano or Latino community um, in, in San Marcos. Um, and so I was, I was feeling sort of isolated, even though I was surrounded by friends. Mm -hmm. uh, and I certainly was struggling academically, even though there were resources for tutoring and those kinds of things. Um, and several things have happened that allowed me to sort of, you know, sort of undergo this sort of change in consciousness. For starters, I lost my financial aid. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing that said, right, uh-oh. Right. So I had to go and work that summer in San Antonio. I worked at the San Antonio International Airport. I worked as a security guard. Mm -hmm. uh, and I worked the night shift. And I said, I'll never do this again. I'm going to make sure I, I get all my, my <laughs> grades good. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that I did is, is I, um, I reached out to the Latino organizations that were on campus. And I hadn't done that before. Um, and I quickly joined those organizations. I joined AMAS, the Association of Mexican-American Students. Um, it was deactivated. Uh, for many, many years. In fact, I learned when I joined them that they were the first Latino organization on that campus established in 1967. Um, and they had deactivated for several years and several decades, and, and then it was recently reactivated, and I joined them. Uh, and it was through this organization that I began to expand mm -hmm. this small circle of friends uh, who very quickly then sort of played the role of a family for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and through that organization also, I was able to appreciate uh, my history and my culture and my heritage because those are the things I took for granted in San Antonio. Right. I never had to think about those things. I went to a high school that was mostly Mexican-American um, and I never thought about those things and I only thought about those things when I became the super minority in another place and in another space. Uh, but that sort of helped me uh, reorient myself uh, in so that uh, you know I ate better, I slept better, I exercised, my health improved. Uh, my attitude improved. I had a bad attitude. Uh, I did well in classes. I, I became a student leader. We put on conferences. We brought in speakers. We raised money. We did volunteer work. I had never done volunteer work ever, mm -hmm. uh, and I was doing that. Um, uh, and you know, these are the you know. I finally selected on a major. I was changing majors every other semester, it seemed, and I finally chose a major. And and that sort of kind of 
empowered me to apply that kind of discipline mm-hmm. that I know I had. I, I mean, I had it in, in high school. I had it in middle school even. And, and, and I, I reapplied the discipline that was effective for me in the past, and I reapplied it here, uh, and I made new networks and made new friends, and, uh, and that got me through the undergrad, and that got me through the master's program, and that would get me through the PhD program, and it really sort of impacted the way I think about myself in society, the way I see myself in society, and then the way I try to treat others uh, in society. Mm-hmm. Was your graduate work here in Texas as well? It was. Um, I, 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 I stayed in San Marcos to work on my master's degree. Um, I didn't apply anywhere else. I applied there. Uh, there was a sense of, you know, I was, a, I was fearful somewhat of rejection. Uh, and I said, well, let me apply here because I think they'll take me. I think they, they see I'm working. Uh, I, I was an SI instructor. It's kind of like a TA, but you're an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was tutoring students uh, who were struggling uh, in history. And it was, I was sort of acting like a, t- like a TA but um, I didn't have to grade their papers. Somebody else, the TA graded their papers. So I had uh, found a space there in the history department. Um, and there weren't many faculty member there, members there that sort of reflected me or that I thought I can really relate to. There were a couple that uh, uh, you know, sort of rose to the challenge and said, well, let me, mm-hmm. let me talk to this young man because he doesn't seem to know how to write a historiography paper. Let me set him straight. Uh, and they did, and I appreciate them for, for doing that. Uh, but I applied to the master's program, and, and I, I was accepted. And I said, oh, okay, good. And I didn't want to happen to me what happened to me the first time I entered college. I said, let me make sure that I understand what the expectations are. Right. Uh, and so I navigated myself through the master's program. Um, I, I was not uh, surprised to learn that there was a tremendous amount of reading and writing that uh, was... And it was history. Yeah, and it was history. I, I, I finally selected history. And, but I was not surprised by that, but I was also a bit overwhelmed from it. It's, uh, I don't read fast. I have to read sometimes two times to, to understand the concepts. A lot of these uh, sort of concepts were too abstract for me. And I was like, but well, I need to see an example where you can't see abstract examples. Um, and so I struggled a bit, but not to the point where I washed out of the program. Uh, you know, I successfully completed the program. And then in the master's program, I sort of had this moment where I said, oh, this is, I can do this. And then there is where I then applied to PhD programs. And I was also at the same time, um, as an undergrad, I was working towards my certification. I knew I wanted to teach. I was going to teach social studies. Uh, so I majored in history and minored in Spanish, and I got certified to teach both. Um, and so I was going to do that. And I said, well, I'll apply to the master's program. If I don't get in, I'll go teach. Then I got in. And then the same thing, I'll apply to a PhD program. And if I don't get in, then I'll go teach. I had jobs lined up. Right. Um, and so uh, I did apply. I applied to five different schools um, uh, for the PhD program. All five said no. All five turned me down. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and in fact, it's, it's a funny thing, right, because um, the University of Houston is where I graduated from with a PhD uh, they, they were one of the first ones to tell me no. Mm-hmm. In fact, they told me no twice. It's a funny story now. <laughs> uh, I had gotten a, a letter officially from them at my, at my mom's house in where they didn't accept me into the program. Uh, and then I had gotten a call from somebody that says, well, look, you, you weren't accepted. And I was like, yeah, I know. I got the letter already. <laughs> you don't have to rub it in. Yes. <laughs> uh, and they weren't. I mean, it was just yeah. they were informing me. Uh, but, I, you know, something that I'm glad that I did is the year that I was applying to the program, I reached out to faculty members at that, at that department 
And because I knew who I wanted to work with and I knew what kind of history I wanted to study and specialize in. Mm -hmm. And I went and I visited him and I said, hey, I want to do what you do. I want to get into this program. I'm finishing up in San Marcos and I'm applying to this program and I want to work with you and I want to do with you almost word for word. I said that and you're probably not going to remember that I said this, but I said this right outside his office, right there on that fifth floor of that building that where our history department sits. And I think that made an impression. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went in and, and met them. I met several other faculty members in the department. Uh, and then I was getting ready to go home. And they said, no, you, you can't leave yet. It was like five something. They're like, you shouldn't leave yet. And I'm like, well, why, why can't I leave? I got to get back. It's a three hour drive to get back. Right. Right. Well, they said, well, you're going to get stuck in traffic. So why don't you come to the house and come have dinner? And I went to their house. I went to the house of who, who eventually would become my advisor, mm-hmm. Guadalupe San Miguel. And he fed me and we talked some more and then I didn't hear from him for a while, and then, then I get sort of rejected, and rejected twice, if you will. But then, <laughs> as I learned, it, this, this, this man went out and vouched for me, mm-hmm. and uh, he asked the department to reconsider, and they did. Mm-hmm. And all I needed was an opportunity. Mm-hmm. All I needed was the opportunity because I knew I had the discipline. I knew I had the, 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 the rigor for it. I knew I had the courage for it. And I went and I got it done, and San Miguel made sure I got it done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, you know I'm, I'm grateful for that because he didn't have to do that. Right. It, 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 it changed my life, this program. And then, you know, he gets me out of the program, and and then he writes letters of recommendation for me uh, to get hired and to get tenured. And, you know, uh, and so you don't have to do those things, but he continues to impact his students in very major significant ways. Right. I mean, the importance of mentors, right? Networking, yes, but also the, the people that are committed to seeing you shine to seeing you grow to seeing you learn and I think I mean I've had uh, a few of those you know people in my life throughout my own journey and um, and that and the lack of having mentors and yeah. guidance um, uh, feed my interests in and in doing you know that for my students yeah. um, so mentoring my students guiding them and um, so yeah so it, Thank you for sharing that, right? Like it's a lot of times we think that, or our students think that our professors, um, you know, there's, there's this straight line, no difficulties, like it's it's easy. <laughs> and and I, I share this, I'm like, I started at a community college all the way to, to a PhD. I had breaks in between. Um, it was hard, you know, it was hard. Um, and um, on top of just being hard, I was, um, you know, I'm an, Im- an immigrant also learning English when yeah. I start, started college. And so it's not been easy, but it's been so rewarding, right? Yeah. And I've learned and, and grown in ways that I wouldn't have otherwise. So, um, so yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, what you're saying, it's uh, about um, finding support or maybe not even thinking about needing support when you went to college because you came from an institution like the ones that you describe in your book, right? That was very much cultural sustaining, culturally and linguistically sustaining, right? Where um, students were successful because they were nurtured, right? Because they were um, provided um, uh, education, training in their own, um, within their own, you know, cultural backgrounds and, and linguistic background. And so, um, yeah, like not thinking about that when you go to college and the importance of that. And, and um, so, so, yeah, I enjoyed listening to, to your journey in that way. Um, so today we're discussing your, your book, Raza Schools. 
And um, in, the in the introduction, you mentioned how um, the community welcomed you, even mm -hmm. though you're not from that yes. community, right? Um, and uh, your methods, which include a description of the value of oral histories from this community. Uh, why was it important to you um, for this work? And why is it important to you personally? Yeah, um, you're right. I I'm not from that community. Um, you know, Del Rio is three hours west of San Antonio. And when I lived in San Antonio, I, I never went anywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe I went to the coast with the family, but, you know, we didn't really travel much. We didn't have that sort of leisure. And um, But when I get to Del Rio, uh, you know, the people treat me, and very immediately they treated me like I was born and raised in that city. Mm -hmm. um, I, You know, I was completely honest with them. I told them that I knew nothing of this city and this community that I wanted to study and the school district that I wanted to, to write about and um, and that I was going to ask questions and that, that, that I hope that, you know, you know, as sometimes is the case, sometimes the questions are hard questions. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, they, they began to, you know, the word mentor, they began to mentor me, really, and they began to nurture me, uh, and uh, they began to introduce me to other people. And I thought I was going to have a hard time actually finding persons to interview. It, it, that was not the case. I, I maybe called one or two people, and then they had like 20 other people that I can interview. Um, but uh, I, I was able to, I mean, they, they treated me this way, and, and I really respected that because these interviews that, that were done, they were done in the private spaces of these individuals. Like, they brought me to their houses. Mm -hmm. And uh, in addition to sharing with me their personal stories and sharing with me tough stories, they also then shared with me memorabilia, mm -hmm. photographs. And I would hear the conversations between the spouses and the partners, and I would see the pets, and, and I, would, I would learn from, I would learn as much from them watching them be in their homes and in their communities as much as I did from listening to those interviews. Um, and, you know, and I think that storytelling in many ways allowed us to forge those kinds of connections. Right. Um, they, they realized quickly that I didn't come in and I wasn't coming in to extract information and leave. Mm -hmm. I lived in that city for, two, for two, almost two years, maybe a little bit over two years. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I learned the city um, and I visited with people even when I wasn't interviewing them. I visited with them, uh, and I went to their events. Uh, they would take me to the football games, and they would invite me to go into Acuna in Mexico, and I was there every other weekend. And also, I mean, it was a beautiful place to live, and Mexico was a wonderful place to go, and, and um, I was eating there and drinking those Mexican Cokes. It was super <laughs> delicious. They're very addictive. Um, but storytelling allows us to bridge gaps, and storytelling allows sort of that, it wipes away the strangeness in many ways, um, and I put a lot of weight on on narrations. I put a lot of, I give a lot of credence to oral histories. And in, in my mind, the story from a person who lived in the neighborhood uh, and has been there for 80 years, their experiences, their stories, their narration is as important as a newspaper clipping might be that I can find online, mm -hmm. or a report that I might find in an archive somewhere. Uh, and and I really try to you know sort of you know reposition those in many ways, as historical authority. This whole project started because I interviewed somebody. Mm -hmm. And I was exploring whether or not I was going to do this project. And I interviewed somebody, and I said, nah, there's something here. Let me pull at this thread. And when I did, I mean, it's just this mosaic of fabulous stories and experiences uh, and memories. I mean, 
it's it's a collective memory. That's not my term. I learned that reading Monica Martinez's, but it's a collective memory that they have there. And uh, it, it was the first time that I had seen firsthand a shared experience like that by an entire community. It seemed in, in my neighborhood uh, that wasn't the case. I hadn't. There was no sense of community and sense of neighborhood like it was in in this community. Um, they would have these parades and they would have these events and they would. There would be they would have this center of cultural production and, and that wasn't the case in my neighborhood. In my neighborhood, we were divided and we were we were in, you know in different factions and things like that. And, and that was the first time that I had seen something like that. And so I was in, I was all in, and they saw that I was all in, and they allowed me then to remain there. It's only because they allowed me to do, be in those spaces that I was able to take those stories. I, I'm not in there to to tell them they need to give me stories. I'm not in there to correct them when they're talking to me. I'm in there to learn. Uh, I'm the one working on the PhD, but I'm not the expert in the room. I'm not the expert on on, in, on the microphone. It's them, and I'm there to listen and learn respectfully, uh, and I'm there to uh, sort of learn the dignity that they have so that I can walk with that same kind of dignity. But I, I put a lot of credence on, on interviews and oral histories, and I think that is the best way to research, to write, that is the best way to think critically, and, that, and as a teacher and as an educator, that's the best way to teach students. Right, right. Um, Jesse, over the past, uh, I don't know, five to ten years, maybe a little longer, we're, we hear more and more about the value of cultural and linguistically sustaining curriculum and pedagogy. And although it's not a new concept, and certainly and it's been certainly in existence perhaps before we had the theoretical language to discuss it. Your research on Latino education activists in San Felipe, um, in the San Felipe community of West Texas, points to these efforts in the early 1900s. Um, talk to us about what you see as key steps for successful educational autonomy and success for this community. Yeah, so, so this community is going to establish uh, a school district in 1929, and they're going to name the school district after their community, San Felipe, so it'll be called San Felipe Independent School District. One of the things that I argue and that others have argued, so it isn't my argument, it's the storyteller's argument, mm -hmm. is that this is the first time that Mexican-Americans, perhaps in the history of the state of Texas, are going to establish and then maintain uh, a TEA-recognized educational Right system, and and they do this with the onset of the depression, and they do this uh, at the height of Jim Crow. Uh, that is to say, at a time where Mexican Americans and uh, ethnic Mexicans uh, are segregated, and they're overpoliced, and they're disenfranchised, and, and and so on and so on, and and they, you know, they do these things, and they they form their first uh, completely controlled, mostly controlled ISD uh, in Texas, and so. I jumped into the archives there. They got a beautiful museum um, that I, I'm, I'm going to talk about here in a moment again. But they got this beautiful museum there, and in this museum, they have, I mean, it's, it is it has the most extensive collection of artifacts uh, that speaks to the history uh, of that community and of that district. And sorting through yearbooks, I don't know if many people often use yearbooks for research. They should if they don't, because these yearbooks, I mean, you fall in love with the people, and you fall in love with the community. Uh, just looking through yearbooks, and you get a, a tremendous amount of information, and just a wealth of information from yearbooks. And what I learned is in looking at these yearbooks, is I was looking to see, you know, who was enrolled in what classes, mm -hmm. who was the, the president of what club, and you know, who which teacher taught what and what subject. And one of the things that I noticed very quickly is that in San Felipe, between 1929 and 1970, 1971. 
while this school district offered uh, industrial curriculum and it offered maybe vocational curriculum, occupational classes, those things were not, was not what was stressed. Unlike in other places like in San Antonio or in Houston, where that was stressed and that's what that's what was afforded to ethnic Mexicans and Latino students. And now I'm not throwing shade at those kinds mm-hmm. of right. curriculums. I think that there I I recognize the value of trade school. What I'm saying is that, that was the only thing that was being provided to them, and that should not be the case. And I realized that in San Felipe, well, they were preparing their students to go beyond a trade school or to go beyond mastering a craft. And they were preparing their students to enter into an institution of higher learning. And so a lot of these students were receiving uh, a liberal arts education or an education that we might consider STEM or STEAM today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I learned also that the curriculum and talking to teachers, right, because uh, I, I interviewed about 40 people who at one time were the teachers, students, and administrators. And, and speaking to these persons, uh, many of them revealed that they had steered the curriculum in a way in that it was inclusive of the learner and that it was um, not hostile to the learner, mm-hmm. uh, in that it prepared them for the rigors of a higher, right? So there was, it was a rigorous curriculum, and that it was one that was culturally sensitive. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He says, well, we did a lot of our instruction in Spanish, mm-hmm. and we did it in Spanish in 1933, 1935, 1937, and, and you know, and because some of your listeners probably already know this, they know this better than I do, is... In Texas, while there is no public, you know, or policy or, or law that exists on the books that is going to forbid speaking Spanish on school campuses, there was a practice that, that did that. And it was a social custom that did that. And in many places across the state, students were punished right. for speaking Spanish. And they would censor them and they would fine them and they would expel them and they would do all kinds of things, um, physically assault them. Right. Um, and, but in San Felipe, that wasn't the case. Uh, and so while they stressed English, and while instruction also incurred in English, oftentimes instruction took place in the language that was the dominant language of the learner. And that reminds me in many ways, if we sort of fast forward to the contemporary, that reminds me of the way we think about and the way dual language instruction right. is structured. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that, you know, you know, today, for example, an 11th grader could be taking chemistry or science completely in Spanish or in French or in something mm-hmm. else. And that's what's happening in San Felipe too, right? I mean, I don't mean to paint the picture that uh, it was free of sort of these Americanization movements or these English-only movements, these mm-hmm. campaigns that would sweep across the city. They would come to Del Rio, and the people would engage in a dialogue on whether or not they're going to change the curriculum or is the curriculum going to remain the same. Now, it evolved, and it always evolves, and it has to, you know, because they add more rigor. Spanish was never criminalized, and mm-hmm. Spanish was never something that was disparaged. And many of the teachers who taught in San Felipe uh, are from that community. That community prided itself on preparing uh, its own educators. Uh, and they would go off to college and come back and teach in the very classrooms that they once sat in as students. And so those teachers knew the community. They're from that community. They look like the learners. They, they knew the parents and they spoke to the language and parents oftentimes mostly appreciate. I mean, these were bilingual, this is a bilingual community. Right. And they can code switch back and forth uh, with ease. I mean, they do it as easy as breathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but oftentimes, right, parents want to speak and be spoken to in Spanish, and the teachers would do that. And so this is what the curriculum is doing and what the educators did uh, in San Felipe, in that it was rigorous, 
it was inclusive, it wasn't hostile, and it was also culturally sensitive, and it had a strong parent component to it. Mm -hmm. It got parents involved, and parents needed to be a part of the learning process and of the learning experience of the child. This is how they are able to excel beyond expectations. You know, as I'm I'm reading your book, um, I I appreciate that you highlight also some of the conflicts, right, that that happen and how, um, you know, they they were able were successful despite everything that was going on around them. And and I I keep thinking about some of the towns not too far away that had very different experiences. I mean, Del Rio is one of them, right? But also like Crystal City, Mm. Um, and so um, for this community to to be a model, right, for how to create a curriculum that really speaks to the community and that serves the community and that doesn't see the trade, you know, training as the only Correct. Um, possible, I don't know, path, Correct. career path for, for the community, um, which, you know, doing this in the 1930s, I mean, even like in the 1970s, right, it was very revolutionary yeah, indeed. for it, our community. No, it, it's an anomaly, mm-hmm. really. Uh, it, 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 I don't know if it happening anywhere else, at least not to the same sort of large extent that it took place in this in this district. Right, right. Um, from your time spent in the archives and collecting oral histories, what do you think fosters this sense of pride and collaboration in the community? And I like that you mentioned the, the yearbooks. I never mm-hmm. thought about that, but yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, um, th- th- this is a, an extremely proud community for a whole host of reasons. I mean, they have uh, a proud veteran community and a community that supports its veterans. Um, but, you know, if I had to identify one thing, at least as an outsider mm-hmm. looking in, I, I would say that they're probably most proud of sort of just a long history of intellectual accomplishments and educational achievements. Um, this community was founded by intellectuals. This community was founded by people who were literate. This community was founded by persons who were entrepreneurs. These are persons who were civic-minded. These are individuals who understood rights and, and freedom and democracy and liberation. And so that these founders, these early families, and then their descendants, and then others who come and sustain them, uh, they would very immediately work to create uh, an insular community that is going to protect them from the things that are bedeviling Latinos and Mexicanos everywhere else. And in this insular environment, then in this community, they begin to establish their own institutions and community control they understood it well, was the most effective way for true liberation. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to be in charge of everything. They wanted to run their own institutions, their own businesses. Uh, I mean, they opened up their own religious centers. And it's a really sort of religious, diverse community. I mean, you would have the Mexican Baptist. You would have the Mexican Baptist there. You would have the Mexican Presbyterian, mm-hmm. the Mexican Methodist. Certainly the Mexican Catholic would be there. And, and But they managed those things, and they determined, you know, those things, and it would be the same for the schools and the school districts. And because they controlled the school districts, there's something very important, right? Because they controlled those school districts, they then were responsible and could determine who worked in them as teachers, who administered them as principals, and more importantly, how students excelled in them. And it was this kind of ownership and uh, community, sense of community, community control that really is going to allow them to achieve beyond expectations. And that I think that's probably the thing that I would say that they're probably the most proud of is, look, we are graduating. We were graduating Mexican-American students starting in 19, because that's the first graduation class, starting in 1932, mm-hmm. at a time when Mexican-Americans aren't receiving an education past the eighth grade. 
or if they are, maybe they don't, they're not allowed to go to the 11th and 12th grades, so they never finish high school. Here they're graduating from a high school, an accredited high school, a four-year high school, and then they're applying to institutions of higher learning, coming to places like San Antonio, St. Mary's University, applying to UT Austin, going to where I went to school in San Marcos. They were there before me. They sort of made it, blazed the paths for me. And, and, and then they get these degrees. They get into law school. They get into journalism. They become artists. They become politicians. They're on the radio waves, and they come back as teachers to the community. And so it's the intellectual accomplishments and the intellectual achievements that I think it is, is the thing that they really pride themselves on. Um, and, and I would agree with them. I think that, that is, that's phenomenal. I'm thinking about how we need to get back to that, right, to um, really have our parents engage. And I know that there is different reasons why parents maybe have limited um, abilities, right, to engage in their school, um, their uh, son's daughter's education. But, I mean, this study shows the importance of right, uh, the PTA, the an active PTA, right, that's not just uh, fundraising for... I don't know, but actually um, determining um, uh, curriculum, um, yeah. who gets hired and why, you know, and um, so very, very strong parental participation, which it's rare to see nowadays. No, they, they have the formula for it, and I think that um, it, it, if it worked there, it can work anywhere else. Mm-hmm. I, I firmly believe that it worked there, it can work everywhere else. Um, and why it's not working everywhere else, it's really beyond me. I, I don't know the struggles of other families and communities, um, but that's the work that remains to be done. We got to go and see right, what is happening uh, that is the same or not the same that took place in, in San Felipe. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, they seem to have a form of that work for them uh, for nearly four decades. Right, right. Um, did you discover any internal conflicts um, and, and I read some of it, so I know that there's been some. Um, how did the district, the San Felipe um, Independent School District leadership and the town itself navigate this to build a, a sense of collective ownership? Yeah, no, that's a great question. There is internal conflict. There, there always is. Um, and that's okay because, you know, Mexican-Americans, even in this sort of very tight-knit and insular environment, you know, they're not a monolithic group. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're different and diverse You just peoples. mentioned several traditions right. Right, within that religion. Right, I mean, there, it's a, a tremendous amount of religious right. diversity that right. exists for, for starters. And, um, and, and, you know, and some people are different because of their economic sort of levels. Some are working class and some are middle class and some are, you know, as we might say, upper class. Um, persons are um, longtime residents of the neighborhood and others are recent arrival to the neighborhoods and mm-hmm. Some speak uh, English uh, proficiently and others don't. And so there are several kinds of, of internal conflicts that are taking place in this community. Uh, La Politica is something that is going to always uh, uh, be sort of a wedge or further wedge the Mexican-American community. And that's okay because this is not a monolithic community. They're not all the same thinkers and the same believers of the same stuff. Um, and oftentimes uh, teachers would come and go as a result of their political engagement and their political involvement. And sometimes uh, politicians, or excuse me, uh, uh, persons were accused of not being political enough. Mm. Other times they're being chastised because they're maybe too political, maybe on the edge now of being too radical. And um, and those come and go with the generations, if you will. Uh, there's a generational divide uh, also that, that exists in this community. And so there are several 
existing internal conflicts um, in this community, but in spite of those internal conflicts, in spite of those differences, I think that they all were on the same page uh, regarding the idea of community control, regarding the idea of being self-sufficient and self-reliant and not having to rely on others to do for ourselves or others to do for our kids. And so I think in spite of those differences, they move that aside to really get on the same page for the best interests of their kids. And so that's also something that's worth mentioning, I think. Mm We are in the era of book banning and educational whitewashing. How do you see your research working against the, this anti-woke agenda yeah. of some states, including yeah. Texas? Including Texas, right? I think Texas is probably at the forefront of it. Um, let me just say for the public here, for the record, that I stand against sort of the banning of books, and I stand against censoring and silencing and uh, of free thinking and critical thinking. I stand against those things. Uh, and I recognize that there are um, parts of this book that might frighten persons and might cause them to maybe add this book to the list. Uh, and I would tell those persons, I said, look, well, just read the book. Mm-hmm. Right? Read the book because you're going to learn that while this is Latino history and while this is uh, West Texas history and while this is Borderlands history, uh, that this is American history. That's what it is. You're censoring American history, um, or you're at least you're, you might attempt to censor American history. This is a book of triumph. This is a book of struggle and overcoming those struggles. This is a book of endless pursuits for excellence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so read the book because those are the themes that that should jump out the most. But I do recognize that you know I talk about destroying the segregationist regime. I talk about the uh, interference, uh, colonial expansionism mm-hmm. uh, into this neighborhood. I talk about the overreaching arm of the federal government. And, and I, I talk about those things, and I sort of I'm unapologetic about the way I talk about those things mm-hmm. because those things disrupt the daily lives of people in very personal, intimate ways. So I don't let them off the hook. I don't use nice language. Right. Uh, we have to be honest because if we're going to be honest, then let's be honest. Uh, and so I recognize that in that honesty, that that might put my book on the list. Uh, and if they do, I, I think they're doing a disservice to the next generation of learners. This book should be, and not just because it's my book, but books like these right. should be in every school K through 12. Uh, and so that students see themselves in pages and they see themselves in other communities. Representation is important. A historical representation is important. Um, but if they're going to do that, then they're going to do that. Uh, and I say bring it on, and I say it's not going to do them any good anyway because even if they do ban this book, they're never going to erase the history of San Felipe. Right. That community is there. Mm-hmm. The people are still there. Uh, they have established a wonderful, be- beautiful museum, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that just houses the most extensive collection of artifacts. There is no way that they can ever erase the history and the heritage and the accomplishments of that community. The, 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 the students uh, and the, the, the persons from that community they have, uh, you know, again, I, I recently read Monica Martinez's book, and I'm really inspired by a lot of her language. And she uses a term, uh, she sort of, you know, when she's talking about storytelling, she calls them sort of these valiant acts of preservation. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going on in San Felipe. Right. These, are, these are valiant acts on the part of these persons to preserve their history. And, and I see that as a form of resistance because what they're resisting against is they're resisting against erasure. Mm-hmm. They're resisting against being erased. Uh, and so... Ban on if you're going to ban. 
You can never erase the accomplishments of this population, and you won't ever erase the accomplishments of any population anywhere else, despite how many books you try to ban. That's what and I you said know how, how necios we all are, right? Yeah, for sure. So they banned the book, we read the book. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, in fact, and, uh, uh, it'll, be, it'll be to the mind and the press's benefit, I think, if they absolutely. ban the book. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I have students, right? I have, so we have here an event where uh, classes go and read all the banned books at the, at the library. Um, but also students, the government or, you know, people that are banning books underestimate um, our students and the desire they have for truth. Um, and, um, and that, to me, gives me a lot of hope, right? And makes me happy that students um, are, are thinking, right, about, like, why, why are they doing yeah. this, right? Why yeah. are they wanting me to be um, blind, right, to, to this history? So, so I have a lot of hope. Like, in, in this times, even though, you know, with this censorship or... Uh, book banning that that our students are are there to like uh, push back and and go buy and read all of, all the books all the books. Um, Jesse, what are you working on next? I know you have a lot of book uh, talks and yeah. presentations. Yeah. Uh, but what's next for you? So uh, I, I have recently uh, myself and another colleague of mine, Dr. Natalie Garza, who is a professor uh, of history at Houston Community College. Uh, and she's a longtime friend, too. She's also from San Antonio. Um, she and I are co-editing a volume that explores the relationship between Latinos and law enforcement in Houston. Mm. We are tentatively calling it Bayou City Policing. Um, we have recently received uh, an advance contract from the University of Oklahoma Press uh, who wants to include this book, this forthcoming book, as part of its series, The New Directions in Tejano History, which, by the way, is the series that Raza Schools belongs to. It's book number four okay. in that series. And so uh, Natalie and myself have recruited 10 writers. It's a 12-chapter book. She and I are also writing chapters. But we uh, recruited 10 other writers. It's a very sort of eclectic cast of historians, public historians. I know one public historian now. Mm-hmm. Uh, artists and, and, um, and uh, journalists who are writing different chapters to explain... Uh, the relationship between Latinos and law enforcement. Now, there is no singular experience when you sort of think about Mexican-Americans and law enforcement. Uh, and one of our writers made that very clear, and so I say it all the time now. Um, and so this, this book promises to be the first book-length work that explores this non-singular relationship between Latinos and law enforcement. And so it's 12 chapters. The first six chapters sort of take this chronological approach uh, and then the last six chapters take on a thematic approach uh, and, you know, sort of weaved through in or throughout the narrative uh, would be uh, themes like social justice, uh, resistance, community solidarity, uh, you know, civil rights, you know, and those kinds of things. And so this is what the next project is. And uh, we're, we're getting some momentum here. Um, and, uh, yeah, the deadlines are approaching. So if you're listening, writers and contributors, please, let's let's make sure that we're, we're getting and meeting our deadline. But that's the next project. Um, and when is that um, scheduled to come out? Well, uh, so we, we promised the press that we'll, we'll, we'll send them the draft, I think we said March, April of next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe that's now the summer of next year, right? Fingers crossed. But it, it's, it's going to hit the shows fast. Like the press is excited about it. Um, uh, we're excited about it. It's, it's a timely project. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a controversial topic, but, you know, we don't shy away from those kinds of things. Again, if we're going to be honest, let's be honest. And if we're going to be 
uh, you know, the most effective writing is the writing that sort of pushes on and pushes forward despite, right, the, the controversy and, and, and the consternation that it might elicit. But we have, to we have to tell these stories and we have to document these stories. And, and there, is not a, there is no book-length project now that exists to explore the history of Latinos in Houston and law enforcement. And so we need to fill in that void. Right, and hopefully next year I'll have you and Please, hopefully. Natalie, Natalie. Uh, discussing that book. So, uh, Jesse, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for having me. This was a, this was a wonderful experience for me, and I'm glad that I had an opportunity to share it with you. A todos, gracias por escucharnos, y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Thank you.